Welcome to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, episode 65. Today on the show, I have strength and conditioning pioneer, author, and coach, Mike Boyle. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today we have none other than strength and conditioning coach, Mike Boyle. Uh, Mike is one of the foremost experts in the fields of strength and conditioning. So many people know who he is, but just a brief introduction anyways. Uh, he's been known for his work in functional training, uh, and the definition of which is oftentimes ambiguous, as we'll get to. But one of the earliest uh, founders of private strength and conditioning uh, companies, he's the author of three books, Functional Training for Sports, which is the second book I ever bought in the strength and conditioning field. Uh, also advances in functional training for sports and new functional training for sports. So I own all three of those. They've been an important part of my own library. Uh, Mike is probably the guy, he's got this trifecta going. He's one of the most well-known strength coaches out there, one of the most well-loved strength coaches out there, but at the same time, one of the most hated strength coaches out there. Uh, And well, the reason why, and most people listening to this probably know, is Mike uh, gained um, instant notoriety when he denounced the use of the bilateral barbell squat exercise or, or basically back squatting, you know, even front squatting uh, for athletes. And so why why did Mike get to this point? Like that's that's what we want to go into today. Uh, a lot of because a lot of people will just hear that and they check out. They're like, okay, you don't squat. Okay, I'm not gonna listen to you. Like that's and that's it. Like there's I, I'm I tell you what, like I've been really interested in that that whole thing because I don't just say, okay, well, I have to, that means I have to not squat my athletes. To me, it means I'm just a question asker. Like I wanted to say, Hey, how did you, how did you get here? Like what was the process by which you decided to say, okay, we're, we're going to ditch this exercise. And to me, it's more about learning about those processes and the whys than just the final destination. Cause if we, if we hear something that doesn't resonate with what we strongly believe in, you know, we go, we go we go to reptilian brain we go limbic we we're just like shut it down and and i think that's unfortunate and and i i wanted this episode to really largely revolve around uh the thought processes of one of these pioneers and experts and this guy with so much wisdom in our field because why wouldn't you want to know how you got there uh so we just kind of talked about uh about that that process mike's own experience as a power lifter 
experiences with athletes and not only like the injury prevention side of it, obviously, because I think that's one of the main things is, okay, you squatted and you tweaked your back. Okay. Um, but I want to talk about performance too. And so I asked Mike some performance questions, not just injury prevention, but if you want to be at your highest level as an athlete or say you're a track athlete or, or you're getting ready for the NFL combine and you want every last percent you can get, uh, is this still something you want to throw away? And so Mike talks about that. He's going to get into uh, some other ideas such as even squatting versus deadlifting. How are those fundamentally different? How is the compressive forces different? Uh, we're going to get into concepts on bilateral deficits, neurological efficiency. Uh, Mike just really unplugs for this one. I really enjoyed putting this one together. Uh, listening to Mike both in production and post-production as I went through this, it just really makes you think about why every piece is in your program. And if there's any one piece that is almost too sacred to look at um, an alternative. So uh, I hope you enjoy this one, episode 65 with Mike Boyle. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Appreciate having you here. Thank you for having me. I, I actually love doing these. These are one, they're easy to do because I can do them from home. And two, it, people are listening. You see, and you hear, and you know, you see on Facebook and Twitter, and all, people are listening to these podcasts. So it's a great way to get information out. Yeah. Well. Well. Hey, I'm I'm really excited to get into this. Uh, obviously, you've been really successful in the field, a huge influencer on so many coaches. And so I just like to dig in today and kind of like, how, how did you get there? Like, uh, like uh, more so than maybe just um, exercises and methods. I'd like to get into that too. But uh, starting off, who are your greatest mentors in this field? Maybe right off the bat and then people in the last five, 10 years who, who have been having impact on you? Well, it's interesting sort of uh, before we actually started the the conversation, I said it's an interesting story, and it, it really is an interesting story. I was at Springfield College from 1977 to 1982, I think. And during that time, uh, my dorm director was a guy named Mike Wojcik. If you follow football at all, Mike Wojcik is the longest tenured strength coach in the National Football League and has more Super Bowl rings than Tom Brady. So uh, I was just lucky enough that I walked into my dorm, literally, and there's a big Guy looks like a weightlifter, greeting everybody as I come in and don't really think much of it at the time. And his name's Mike. My name's Mike. I'm unloading my stuff. But he probably was the most influential guy in my life because he was the guy that he got a job as a strength coach. I remember being in college. I was an athletic training major. And strength and conditioning, you have to understand, it didn't really exist. It was not a viable employment option in 1977, maybe I forget what year Boyd Epley got his first job, but it was somewhere in those next couple of years where somebody actually hired a strength coach. And it was probably even less viable a job for a five foot nine, 180 pound guy who didn't maybe look the part. But also at Springfield at the same time was Rusty Jones, who at one point was the second longest tenured strength coach in the NFL, who was with the Bears and the Bills for a long time. And one of the things that you notice, and I always I wrote an article on, um, evolution of a strength coach you talk about who your uh your mentors your influences are alver meal and uh johnny parker and at one point when you looked at it i have never met al miller i've only had the pleasure of talking to al via phone but at one point for about a 10-year period it was either al miller or johnny parker or mike Wojcik or rusty jones in the super bowl and most of the time it was them against each other in some variation so i was incredibly lucky to be 
influenced by some of the most amazing guys in the field really, really early on. But then what happened to me is I managed to get out of the box because I started to realize I liked injured guys. And I loved the mystery of, okay, I, I started, you know, this guy's not going to get better. This guy's never going to be able to come back. And I started to look at stuff and think, wow, I don't know about this. never going to be able to come back, never going to get better. So I started really to look because I obviously had an athletic training background. I started to look more at the rehab side of it and and take on some of these projects that other people necessarily were not willing to take on. And then I started to find like the the Vern Gambettas and the Gary Grays and the Don Chews. And all of a sudden you have this melding of information where you've been around some guys that have really strong track and field backgrounds and some guys who have really strong rehab backgrounds and some guys who have who were literally the pioneers in strength and conditioning. And all that stuff kind of rolls together to develop this philosophy that's made me so widely unpopular in the world of strength and conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Like, it's amazing that having that uh, dynamic background could make someone so unpopular. <laughs> yeah, no, but what you realize, though, is that the people that think and question and speak their mind tend to be unpopular. The other guy, the guy that taught my weight training class had just come from University of Hawaii where he worked with Bill Starr, a guy named Bruce Buckby. And so we show up the year before I took weight training at Springfield College. It was literally a Nautilus class. You went into the Nautilus machines and they showed you how to set the seats and where the cam was supposed to line up with your joints. Luckily for me, the next year, this guy, Bruce, comes from University of Hawaii. He was a wrestler at Hawaii. Bill Starr was the strength coach. And you're a young guy, so you may not be as familiar with Bill Starr, but Bill Starr wrote probably the first strength and conditioning book ever written, The Strong Shall Survive. And, you know, and talk, he, Bill coined the term big three, squat, bench, power, clean. So when people look at kind of what your upbringing was, that was my first book. Literally, Bruce taught us how to squat, how to power clean from the floor, and how to bench press as part of our weight training class at Springfield College at that time. So um, have you read Outliers? Uh, no, I'm not. I've, I've seen the book. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell, I know the premise, yeah. but yeah. So read Outliers because in Outliers, they talk about this idea of um, hothouses and hotbeds. And I was in the hotbed of strength and conditioning totally by accident. I just happened to fall in there. And all these amazing people were there at the time that I was there. And I always say to people, some sometimes it is luck. And it's that that's what Outliers is about. You sort of have that Outliers moment. When I got to Boston University, my first job, the basketball coach was Rick Pitino. Three of Rick's assistants ended up coaching in the NBA. I uh, We just traded for Kyrie Irving. I coached Kyrie's father at BU. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, you just feel like all of this sort of serendipitous stuff. It's crazy that the woman, and oh my God, I can't think of her name, um, Stephen, Sloan Stevens that just won the U.S. Open in tennis, coached her mom at BU. Her mom was Sybil Smith, was a swimmer at BU. And I'm watching the winner of the U.S. Open, and I'm seeing this beautiful young African-American girl winning who's not a Williams sister. And I'm thinking, that's so awesome. And then they start talking about how what a great influence her mom was. And how her mom was a swimmer at Boston University. And I'm like, oh my God, that's Sybil Smith's daughter. That's Sybil Smith. They were showing her with her mom and you know all these things. So you just realize, I always say to people, you, don't, you never know where you are at the time. You never know who you're with. And it's a, it's a pretty good case for why you should be nice to everybody. And um, I think that's helped me a lot um, from a career standpoint because I've been around an incredible number of dicks in our field who treated people really poorly because they had a better shirt. And I can tell you, if I if I wanted to be really rude, I'd name them for you, but I won't. 
But I vowed I would never be that guy. I'd never be the guy who looked around. I've been at bars where guys look around, look at everybody's shirt and figure out who they're going to talk to. Oh, that guy's at Division One school. That guy's at a Division One school. I'll talk to him. So I've had incredible life experiences. I, I always say to people, one of the things that I have to offer at 50, almost 8, is experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to kind of dig into that today, uh, especially too. I mean, it's, it is interesting, like you say, and it makes me think about even social media, like the, the it's, it's popular to see that t headline that you agree with and, and you don't even read the article and like it. And, and it's like, that's kind of how things tend to work and, and people tend to kind of go in these packs of, of, um, agree. it's almost cooler to, I mean, then you have obviously the blatant controversial things and those types of types of movements. Uh, but I, I'd like to really get into like, how did, how have you gotten into, uh, where you've been today? Because obviously you probably just didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, I'm not going to back, you know, I'm not, I, I don't, you know, without any sort of uh, maybe incidents or injuries or seeing these things happen, didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm just not going to back squat anymore. I, I like to kind of go, you know, what are some, what are some incidents or, or things you've gone through that have led to where you are now in your position on uh, risk reward in, in strength and conditioning? Well, one, and this is the stuff that I always think that, that there's so much that people don't know about me. I was a competitive powerlifter in the late 70s, early 80s, and entering meets and competing. And so I'm not a person who hasn't tried this. I'm not a person who hasn't explored it. I'm not a person who hasn't really, really delved into it. And one of the things you realize when you talk about from a risk-reward standpoint and I still, I still remember distinctly. Now, this is how you talk about again serendipity, right? Chris Doyle at University of Iowa. Chris was one of my athletes at Boston University. He was one of my very first athletes in the, I guess, in the early '80s. And I can remember squatting, back squatting with Chris Doyle, and then the next day, being outside and raking my lawn and thinking I have to go to the bathroom. Run back in the house. Uh, can't go to the bathroom, but I still feel like I have to go to the bathroom. Go back outside, rake for a while. I'm in and out of the house the whole day. And I also have a, a backache at the time, but I'm not at that point in my life equating one with the other. Eventually, I go see a good physical therapist friend of mine. He's like, yeah, you've got a nervous something pressing on your intestines. He said, that's why you keep having this feeling that you need to go to the bathroom, but you don't. You know, you've got some disc stuff going on. And, and I started to think, wow. You know, that was my sort of first thought about risk-reward. You know, I just spent the whole day running up and down the stairs to my house to try to go to the bathroom. But I was so programmed to the idea. I can remember being told that your back should hurt for four or five days after a good squat or deadlift workout. And I probably told other people that in the 80s, that that was normal, that, it, that the idea that you had soreness – for four or five days was just part of the deal. Hey, you want to be strong, your back's going to be hurt. I had rotator cuff surgery in 1984 for the same exact reason. We just thought, hey, if you bench press a lot, your shoulders are going to hurt. And I had an acromionectomy done. If you can imagine what an acromionectomy is, it's they cut the end of your acromion off. This was in the pre-arthroscopic days to make room for your shoulder to move better underneath there. And the difference for me is I was just, I, there are some of these guys that I listened to sort of whatever podcast internet that I think are just stupid in terms of they've injured themselves and all they're talking about is I can't wait to get back. Um, I'm actually writing an article called slamming your hand in a car door. And it's, it's about slamming your hand in a car door and then going and telling all your 
friends that you can't wait for the swelling to go down in your hand so you can again slam it in the car door. I mean, and, and that to me is, is some lifts. And it was primarily squatting. What I realized is that there was a huge percentage of our athletes. And, and when I say huge, 10 to 20. So if we was in a collegiate setting, we had 10 to 20% of our athletes that we were monitoring that had active back pain. And I start looking at that thinking, well, 10 to 20% of my athletes are hurt and can't do this lift. Is this, is this the right lift? That was the question with a, again, and I think that the difference for me, and I don't, I won't say I don't have a medical background. I have an athletic training background, but having that background, you start to look at that and at least have those head scratching moments of, Hey, this might not be the right way to go. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Certainly. So it was something kind of built up over time then. It wasn't... Uh, oh, yeah. No, it was... We're talking about years. Um, I mean, we might even be talking about decades. We might be talking about a 20-year process. I'm actually... I'm going to speak at Springfield College tomorrow, and I'm revising a presentation I did on single leg training to give to them. And... It probably took 20 years to get to the, okay, we're just not doing this anymore point. And the guy who gets the credit, it's really funny, is Jeff Oliver, who you probably never met, but who's at College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, great guy. But he was like one of my former athletes who also became a strength coach. And um, he had a conversation one time, and he does not remember this conversation with me. He refuses to take credit for it, but I know it was him. He said, if you could figure out how to test single leg, would you just stop doing double leg? And I was like, absolutely. If we can figure out a good single leg test, I don't think I'll do double leg anymore. And then the difference there was that we kind of got to this bilateral deficit idea, which I didn't even – it was – you talked about Robbie Bork before we got on the, uh, um, on the call. And Robbie was the one who started sending me the bio. He said, he said, Mike, you know, there's actually research that supports what you're saying. He said there's been science behind this for a really, really long time. And I didn't know it. And he said, yeah, it's in, um, oh, I can't think of the name of the book, but I, it was like Comey's book or one of these books, Strength and Power for Sport, or it was called or something like that. And Robbie sends me the page reference with all these references about bilateral deficit. And I start reading about bilateral deficit and realize, wow, I hadn't really thought about that. But what we realized, we were seeing it. We knew it was happening. But we weren't – and so this is what I think is the most interesting part of the whole single leg thing is that we use heavier weights than everybody else. But because we don't transfer the load through the spine in everybody's mind, no, you don't. You use like half the weight that we do. And it's – it's uh, Kevin Carr had a great um, analogy about it. It's like, it's like someone said to you, you know, you, you, can, you can go to McDonald's and you can get – uh, I, have to, I have to think exactly how he said it because it was so brilliant that I wrote it down. It was like you can get two hamburgers for $2. Or you can get, you know, a double hamburger for $4. And you're kind of like, well, why wouldn't I just get two hamburgers for half the price? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And that to me is squatting. Like you look at it and think, why? I go to look at people now and I'm almost incredulous. Like, why would you do this? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense scientifically. It doesn't make any sense orthopedically. It it only makes sense in your, your little mind that thinks 
that oh, this is what I've been told my whole life. So so much of what I talk about in in the presentation is this idea of what if you know what if the way we'd always done it was wrong. And there's a book called um, Creating Magic. It has nothing to do with strength and conditioning. It's actually about Disney. But Lee Cockrell, the guy that wrote Creating Magic, what he says in the book is this idea: What if the way we always did it was wrong? What if how we've been doing it forever wasn't actually the right way? And that in strength and conditioning is so hard for people to to grasp. They just don't, and and not hard. I think in some regards they don't want to grasp it because it would make them wrong. And I actually, you're, how old are you, Joel? Uh, I will be 34 in a week. <laughs> yeah. So some of my re- some of my uh, historical references will not work very well on you, but I have a slide of the fawns from Happy Days. Do you even remember Happy Days? I mean, I've seen a few reruns. That's about it. That's about it. Don't feel bad. <laughs> I, I, I'm old. That's okay. I don't, it doesn't bother me at all. But um, the fawns on Happy Days, who at that time was the biggest character on television, could not say the word wrong. He just he'd be like, I was. <laughs> the word would never come out of his mouth because he was the coolest guy in school and he could not be wrong. And I just feel like that's so many people in our field in strength and conditioning is that they just don't want to look and think, God, I might have been wrong this whole time. Whereas I look at it and think, I only want to be right. And the only way you can be right is to admit that you were wrong. Otherwise, you're just doing what you've always done. And when I look at some people's programs and I realize that that's what they're doing, that they're basically in this situation of, yeah, this is what I've been doing for 20 years. You know, this is what I believe in. You know, if you haven't changed your belief system in 20 years, there's a real good chance you've missed some books. There's a real good chance you've missed a lot of things. And so, um, oh, this guy, I wanted to actually try to, um, I was looking for a quote, but this is crazy. So this is from Bausch and Klom running. So uh, Bosch, excuse me, Franz Bosch's first book, not the second one that's out now, but 2005. And what he says, and it's, it's funny how they, the Europeans write. I think the editing of these books is not very good. But it says the most frequently used power exercise is to straighten the body rapidly upward on both legs from a squatting position while holding a heavy barbell at neck level. I guess what he's talking about is a jump squat. One must question whether the limiting factor for, for performance will be the muscles generating power, the gluteus maximus and the vastus heads of the quadriceps, um, and says during the exercise, the dorsal muscles, the back muscles, are required to exert an enormous amount of the force, and the strong inhibiting signals sent from the spinal column must be overridden. It is likely that the limiting factor will be found here rather than in the concentric force of the gluteus maximus and the quadriceps. So these guys, these great track coaches in Europe, they've been saying this for years. They've Guys like Bosch have been laughing at us for decades as we have this, like, muscle head strength program the, you know and that's why and then and it's the reason that everybody in all the other sports rejects it all you get all the european coaches i don't want the football program i once had a soccer coach tell me national team we were working with our women's national team the soccer coach said i do not want them to do any lifts where the bars on their back are in their hands and what she meant to say was that i don't want cleans and squats and i knew that was what she was saying but they were so resistant because all of us dummy musclehead American strength coaches were just out there with a sledgehammer banging these square pegs into round holes and saying, you know, there's only one way to do this. 
everybody does squats. Everybody cleans from the floor. And that's how you get strong. And then if you get strong, you get fast. Have you read uh, Tony Holler's stuff? Yeah, actually, he was on the podcast a few episodes yeah. ago. So Tony, I've recently discovered Tony Holler. Tony's the same age as me. He's another you know, 40-year overnight success where all of a sudden at 58, people realize he's here. And his sprinters don't lift. And he says, I don't want my sprinters to lift. Heretical, right? Having incredibly good results. You know, and what if the way we always did it was wrong? Now, I don't agree with Tony, but one of the things that I told our staff when Tom, I'm bringing Tony out to speak in a couple of weeks because I love heretics. I want to have people around who are saying the way we did it might have been wrong. Now, I'm not necessarily going to, I said to our staff, we're not going to stop lifting because ultimately, no matter what happens, our world is contact sports, not track and field. So I can still make a case for strength training, even if it was having no application of speed. But it's just that idea that I'm totally willing. I always say to people, I am so not married to any concept. I am only married to the idea of best practices. I'm only married to the idea of I want my athletes to be better. I want my athletes to be the best. I want them to win championships. I want them to make millions of dollars. And the cool thing is my athletes have won championships and my athletes have made millions of dollars. I couldn't even tell you. And, you know, obviously, and I, I don't, I'm not a, a name name and I'm not a, I made this guy guy because I think there's so many friggin' phonies in our industry who take credit for work they never did. But we've been able to be involved with people that have won you know, Olympic medals and won world championships and world series and, and literally made millions and millions and millions of dollars. That's the goal, right? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's, that's at the end of the day, you know, what, what results did you get? And it doesn't matter what tool, whether you use a Bulgarian split squat or you use a back squat and you got lucky and, and the person over a period, a long period of time did not get, you know, injured at all or <laughs> didn't have residual soreness. Uh, you know, it's the, the tool is, is the part of the, the end game. I, I think it's very interesting too, that you came from the powerlifting background. Like I think about this a lot, like how our own intuition, our own experiences as an athlete, it's almost like, it's almost like the tunnel we put ourselves in and then the program comes out and that you were able to kind of go through that you were able to go through that, but you didn't go the typical route of, um, just diving right back into it and, and almost like finding more ways to, I mean, cause you could do like all this mobility and slow grooving of the lift and try to make it work for sure. Um, but it's interesting that you are just like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good with this. We don't need to keep going this direction. But the, the mobility and the slow grooving and all that stuff, isn't that like whittling the square peg? You know what I mean? You're like, oh, it doesn't fit. But geez, if I spend a week here, I might be able to make it fit. And you're like, yeah, but it didn't fit. Just accept that it didn't fit. It's okay. You know, I always tell people, I love stupid analogies. I love the, the more absurd the analogy, the better. I always tell people, I really like beer and I really like ice cream. But when people ask me, ask me about nutrition advice, I don't say beer and ice cream. But that's what we do in strength and conditioning. There are so many people who recommend what they like. This is what I like. You know, this is what we do. And you look and think, but is that the best thing? Is that what we're supposed to be doing? And sometimes people will almost look at you again with that incredulous face of like, wow. I mean, of course it's what we should be doing because it's what I like to do. It's what I did. I mean, I can't believe there are still people that are in the, this is what I did. The, the worst coaches <laughs> that I have ever been with in any sport 
are the this is what I did when I was a player. The best coach, so I, I was like, you talk about your mentors, Jack Parker, who's was the hockey coach at Boston University until he was 70. He is the winningest coach in one sport at one school in the history of the NCAA. So he's won more games in hockey at Boston University. I think he won 896 games. And you talk about absence of ego. At 896, he retires. Instead of saying, oh, I'm going to coach four games next year and then turn the reins over to somebody else so I can get 900, he's like, who cares? 896, 900, what's the difference? 896 games at the same school, in the same sport. He'd never picked up a weight in his life. He'd be the first guy to admit to you that I'd never picked up a weight in his life. He used to come in. People would ask him what we were doing in the weight room. He's like, I have no idea. That's why I have mine. And we won uh, two national championships while I was there. I think we played in in about a 20-year period. I think we played in five or six national championship games and appeared in you know 14 Final Fours or something in some insane number and won less than 20 games once. But he never meddled, never got involved, never said, oh, you know, when I, when I, he never said when I was a player, we didn't lift. He never went and watched somebody else's strength coach. Those are the guys I love. I had a, one of my football strength coaches one time said, I want you to go out. There was, so I'm at, that doesn't matter. I can tell a story. Who cares? I'm at Boston University and UMass. Now they fire their football coach. And the next year, they go to the NCAAs. Our football coach says to me, I want you to go out and see what their strength coach is doing out there. I looked at him. I said, the strength coach is the same guy that was there when they stunk. They fired the guy in your position, not in mine. Why do I need to go to UMass and see what he's doing? Then he got incredibly offended. They just, we you know, they had a the best turnaround, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I know. They fired you, not me. Why am I, why am I the one who has to make a trip to go see the guy? You go see him. <laughs> Ask him what he did. Don't don't ask him about the strength program, which is the same one they were on before. But this is the type of stuff that that you deal with year in and year, particularly as a collegiate. I think collegiate strength conditioning can be incredibly frustrating. One of the things I like that's you know people say, what's the difference in the private sector? Difference in the private sector? I don't have a boss. I can do whatever I please, and that's pretty awesome. And sometimes in college, you can be like, I have ten bosses. And they all think they know something about strength and conditioning. And most of them are those same, well, when I was a player or this is what the national team does. Or, you know, I went to a clinic and saw some bullshit artist who knows nothing but managed to get on the speaking platform, speak. And now I'm going to come back and tell you how to do your job. And so, yeah, how's, I, that suck for, how's that for a lost rant? You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it is interesting how our, our intuition drives those things and and how trends form and and over the years and I I think that one of the questions I wanted to ask you but maybe I'll take it a different direction because I think we kind of almost covered why people are afraid of the term functional training because they don't want to it's like they almost put it in an association that takes them out of their I guess toolbox that they're so familiar with like they want. Basically, it's like it's everything that's not heavy back squats. I think that's a good question because I think they're afraid of the term functional training because they don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah, that too as well. They have a preconceived notion. Functional training is the BOSU ball or the stability ball or somebody standing on an Eric's pad. And I literally wrote the book on functional training by accident because Human Kinetics came to me in 2004 and said, we want you to write a book on functional training. And I was like, I don't think I know what that is, so I don't think I'd be the guy to write the book. 
And the acquisitions editor at that time said, oh, we think what you do is functional training. He said, so I can just write a book about what I do and then you're gonna call it functional training for sports. And they were like, yep, that's exactly what we're gonna do. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. I guess what we do is functional training. But then people, and I can remember, and um, a, a, a guy who wrote for a lot of the muscle magazines at one point condemned the book and said it was all BOSU ball balance stability bullshit. And I wrote him back and said, actually, it's not. And it's obvious that you didn't read the book. And I presented him with a list of exercises that were in the book. And there were, say, 140 exercises in the book and 10 of them used some sort of balance device. I said, so actually less than 10% of what we showed in the book, I said, there's a whole section on Olympic lifting, there's a whole section on plyometrics, there's a whole section on squatting, there's a whole section on you know uh, hip dominant training. I said, there's a section on upper body pushing, upper body pulling. I said, there's literally less than 10% of this. I said, and you didn't read the, even the introduction to my book before you criticized it. In, in the introduction, I said, function is purpose, therefore any purposeful training is functional. And more importantly, I tell people functional training and the reason we do unilateral training, it is the application of functional anatomy to training. We know how functional anatomy works. Nothing works well bilaterally. That's what the bilateral deficit research shows us. We're actually inhibited bilaterally. We're less efficient. Yeah, it's, it is interesting to think about. Uh, well, with that power output and you think it just of neural drive and um... – in the bulk, like in a split squat Bulgarian versus a back squat, you know, that just the fact that the brain can almost put more juice into the leg you're working, uh, is seems uh, to be. I mean, I, I that's the way I believe it to be, at least and from reading super training those things and, and from your the stories of how strong some of your athletes are off the one leg. Uh, it's, I mean, but obviously, the difference is it has to be something that is causing that to happen. And maybe it is neural drive. I mean, that's why if you look at the bilateral deficit stuff, one of the things they talk about is that the body, the theory is that the body finds bilateral exercise neurologically confusion. So, I mean, is that neural drive or is that neural inhibition or, or you know, is it sort of a chicken and egg situation in terms of when you're trying to do something bilaterally, your body is inefficient? Because that's it. The body knows that it works in X's. It knows that it works diagonally. You know what I mean? Like it's not, you know, if you said the same thing, say to somebody, I want you to dunk the ball with your right hand, but jump off your right leg. Anybody that could jump would be like, that's going to be hard to do. I don't know if I can do that. But as soon as you say to somebody, oh, but how about, okay, dunk it with your right hand, but you can jump off your left leg. They're like, oh, I can do that easy. I can do that backwards. I can do that 360. I can do it sideways. You know, any way you want me to do it, I can do it. Because that's I'm neurologically organized. When I make you neurologically unorganized, I always one of my many lame clinic jokes I always say to somebody, when you see the guy who's same arm and same leg skips, you know, the guy who's like this, mm -hmm. I'm like, cut him. Hey, his nervous system isn't very good. He's never gonna be any good at sports. It's just logic. You know, when you see that guy, you're like, Okay, this guy doesn't even he doesn't move in opposition. There's a real problem with the neural system here. He's probably not gonna be very good. Yeah, that reminds me of a story I heard from I've heard from uh, Dan Fichter, a gym owner in New York, a few times. He worked in a story with Louis Simmons. Like Louis Simmons was doing a sled, a sled pull and and or sled pull sprint. And every time he was doing it, when his right knee came up, his right arm came up, and his and when his left knee came up, his left arm came up. So it was he was he was out of sync. And um, Dan basically had, had 
according to the story, Dan had prescribed him a super slow cross crawl for like five to 10 minutes every day before his workout. And it really helped him out just as a power lifter, just uh, in solving and just helping him to connect his body, connect hemispheres. Well, it's funny you talk about, it's interesting you say that with power lifters, uh, but so I was a former power lifter. And when you talk about these defining moments in your career, I went at once in the last 40 years, the U.S. National Weightlifting Championships have been in Massachusetts. They were in Seekonk, Massachusetts, which is a tiny town down by Rhode Island in sometime in the early 80s. I don't know. I'm going to say it was 81 or 82. Now, I had been going to powerlifting meets and watching these big lunks lumber around. And one of the things that was unavoidably noticeable was that there were not very many athletes at a powerlifting meet. Unless you say that powerlifters, if powerlifters are athletes, then everybody there was an athlete. If you looked and said, I'm looking for sprinters, jumpers, rowers, basketball players, there were none. See, I would go so far as to say there was zero. They were just guys that could crank weight around. I went to the Senior National Weightlifting Championships, and I remember walking around and going, ooh, we're not in Kansas anymore, kid. Everybody looked like an athlete. Every guy that was there looked like he could jump out of the building, looked like he could beat you in a race, looked like he could throw something further than you. And that was the big epiphany for me in terms of why we needed to Olympic lift. So like, like we Olympic lift like crazy. And we snatch, we clean, we dumbbell snatch. The difference is, again, what if the way we'd always done it was wrong? Always from a hang position, always above the knees because we found it to be safer. So we said, you know, we can try to do this stuff from the floor and realize that, again, square peg, round hole. You know, I've, I, again, I do these presentations. I said, you know, you, the people that want their basketball guys to clean from the floor. I'm like, okay, guys, let's deal with some mathematics here. The diameter of a weight plate is a constant. It does not change. Therefore, the shorter you are, the easier it is. That's some basic physics, right? The taller you are, the harder it is. If we go hang above the knee, all men are created equal here. And we could pretty much teach everybody the same. Why would we not do that? And then it's the same thing. It's like the powerless. Nope, you got it because the clean is done from the floor. And you're like, really? That's the reason. The reason is because short people with good dimensional leverage do this well from the floor means that my seven-foot basketball guy should have to, you know, again, like you said, oh, you know, we can work on mobility and we can groove the movement and we can do all that. Oh, that's right. We can shave that square peg. You know, we can be whittling and thinking, I'm going to make this thing round or at least round enough to get the percentage in the hole that I need to get. Or I could just not be an idiot and realize wrong peg. Let's go look for a round peg. Let's go find the one that fits. You know, it's like we're like the kid. Do you have children? I do, yes. You do. So you have one of those little shape boxes, right? Oh yeah, actually, literally just last week it was integrated. So I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy for that. So we have some <laughs> common yeah, ground there. Right. And, and the kids have to figure out star goes yeah. in star and triangle goes in triangle. Like we learn that at a really early age, and kids get it quick, right? Strength coaches, not so quick. You know, we just keep going, and it's like, you know, we look at it and think, I got two blocks, a square run, a round one, and I like the square one. So I'm just going to stand here all day and squish the freaking square one into the round hole as hard as I can. Even though at the age of two, I realized that that didn't work when mom and dad were teaching me about shapes and blocks and that this one goes in this one. You know what I mean? So, And that's why I just laugh. I'm at the point now in my career where it's laughable to me. When people argue, I look and think, God almighty, read a book. Do some research. 
You can't come to this conclusion if you've done your homework. You just can't. Uh, it's too much of the, the pet thing, like, oh, no, but I, but I still like this. And then people will spend hours trying to manufacture reasons. I Oh, hormonally, you know, you won't get the same hormonal response if you, um, you know, if you don't have a heavy weight on two legs. I'm like, really? Like, and I always say to them, like, explain, like, speed skaters' legs. Explain um, distance runners' calves. Explain, you know, cyclists' quads. Explain... Okay, these are all people who are getting hypertrophy from clearly not actually from volume and not heavy neural loads, right? But they're getting hypertrophy and only in these really odd selected muscles where they do incredibly high volume. So, in some ways, you're looking like if you want high volume, if you want big muscles, you probably should be doing more volume. But we also know we don't tolerate volume. Well, that's another story. So, interesting. I, I'm glad you actually um, kind of went there. Uh, in terms of people saying the hormonal thing. And what is interesting too, I, I um, in, in working on a book I have kind of coming out, I was doing a, a ton of research on the hormonal side of stuff. And there is a, there is even like acute uh, testosterone growth hormone increases you get from even something like interval sprints. Uh, I mean, obviously I would think lifting heavy weights is going to be much more so, but there is like, there is a component to other things as well. Uh, I saw it was interesting you brought that up with speed skaters and those other athletes. And one of the things I was like, even bring this up, like think, who are, who are the best looking athletes that you've ever seen? If you're looking at like being cut, it's usually 400 meter runners in track. I mean, that that's a, you know, that type of But if of you're looking that. like, if you're saying, I'm trying to pick for a team sporting event, sprinters, right? I mean, no question, sprinters. And these, these people that, that predominantly just run fast, you know, for a living as what they do tend to have the best bodies. There is absolutely without a doubt. And you think that form follows function, right? That would have to tell you something about, and again, some people would argue, well, that that's because it's the natural selection thing that, you know, it's, it's chicken and egg in terms of they were pre-selected for this. And I'm like, I don't know if I necessarily agree. I just think that, and this goes back kind of to Tony's thing about you know, it's it's a really explosive, high velocity. Like the thing that struck me about Tony's thing that made me really sit up and go, hmm. He said, what else are we doing at 10 meters a second? And I'm like, um, nothing. <laughs> right? Oh, nothing. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's it's once you get and I'd even done some I'd even looked at this like even in acceleration, like step one in a sprint is like. 0.18 seconds and then it's just downhill from there i mean it's so even at beyond step one uh and then but looking at the hip angle i'm like okay what about the hip angle hip torque extension like in a clean i mean surely that's gotta you know and i think that transfers out to about step six or seven and then uh, you know that's the that's it's your ground contact times are out of reach yeah and, and it's just interesting and i still like i said i, I still believe that strength helps in starting I still believe that strength helps in the first 10 meters, but you look at someone like Tony and he might just kind of shrug his shoulders and go, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. If you get good results, you got a kid that ran 1040, you know, and, and as a freshman yeah. and you aren't lifting well, during the season. Yeah. This is the thing with the, the Tony Hollows of the world. I always said, you want to look for people that are doing unusual things in unusual places. He's in a cold weather track and field environment. He should not be succeeding. 
It's like Charlie Francis. When you think about Charlie in Canada with the relatively small sort of African-Canadian, Jamaican-Canadian, whatever you want to call that population in Toronto, he was winning Olympic medals. That should not be possible. What Charlie Francis did was probably akin to like developing a great hockey team in Arizona with the small number of transplants. Or like you look at Austin Matthews, one of the best hockey players. He's a transplant that ended up in Arizona and was you know a number one overall draft pick. But it's more like the probability of finding a whole bunch of those in a place where they're not supposed to be. And Don Chu was that way. I remember reading about Don Chu and realizing that Don Chu had athletes. One of the things that he said is that he was at a Division II school then. He was at Cal State, I believe either Northridge or Hayward. I forget which one. But he had um, his jumpers were consistently in the NCAA Division I championships. And he started looking at them thinking, I can remember thinking, he's got to be doing something unusual to have guys from this Division II school in California who are all making incredible improvements and are actually now in the Division I national championships. And it's interesting. One of the best speed guys, do you know Daryl Leto at all? I don't know if you know Daryl, but Daryl's an assistant uh, yeah. with the Raiders now. He was one of the original um, athletes performance guys with Mark Verstegen. Great guy, great, amazing coach. Where did Daryl go to school? Cal State. Who was his track coach? Don Chu. Do you know what I mean? So it, it's back to the outliers thing. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I think that it is interesting to, and this is something that's always formed me in a way, is looking at someone who gets results and just, and then seeing what they do and throwing away all the preconceived notions you kind of have about, you know, what they should have had or shouldn't have had in the program and, and learning from that. Uh, that's always been uh, influential for me. In- yeah, no, that's what you should be doing. You should be looking, because I first met, it's funny, I met Mark Verstegen when he was at, uh, International Performance Institute down in Bradenton. And he was that guy. He was having unusual results. And I had kids coming back. I had interns coming back like, oh, you got to see what they do at IPI. You got to see what happens at IPI. You got to go to IPI. And I, you know what I did? I went to IPI. And I went and met Mark Verstegen. I met some incredibly smart people, Craig Friedman and Daryl Leto, I, you know, Brandon Marcello. There were all these guys that I met who were in that original group of guys at IPI with Mark. And I met Mark, who became one of my closest friends. But it was that ability to get like out of my box and out of my comfort zone when when someone says, hey, there's a guy down here like you. And in my mind, who's I'm thinking who might be doing something better than I'm doing. But instead, I think what we do, and it's particularly prevalent in the football world, is we just copy people like ourselves and we visit people like ourselves and we go to people. Again, my coach Parker, who you know was probably, like I said, my biggest mentor, used to always say, see, sometimes be like, Mike, I don't even call people back anymore. He said, all they want, all they call for is agreement. You know, they call and they say they want your opinion. You give them their opinion when it's different than theirs, they argue with you. He said, what they're really calling for is agreement. He said, if they want me to agree with them, I don't, I don't bother anymore. <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, that's kind of where I'm at in terms of, I don't really care that people don't, you know, they're, I always tell people we're like the intelligent alternative. The Mike Boyle strength and conditioning alternative is the intelligent alternative. If you want something that's really well thought out, if you want something where you say someone's not only looked at the information, but then analyzed it and then tried it on world-class people over and over again, that's us. 
if you want like the same kind of rehash, hey, this is what my college strength coach did. That's clearly not us. And and I won't. I'm at, I'm beyond defending it. I used to get up at the perform better thing sometimes, and people would literally. I'd get internet stuff where people would say, "You're always changing your mind." It's like exactly. It's called learning. I said, and I do something called reading. And reading and learning caused me to change my mind. And when I find somebody, you know, when I meet Stuart McGill, I stopped doing sit-ups. Because I said, you know something? This guy's way smarter than me. And he said, don't do sit-ups and don't do crunches. Guess what? I'm not going to do sit-ups and crunches anymore. And I'd come back to my staff and they'd be all up in arms. What are you talking about? You know, we're going to throw our whole core program away? Because one guy said it's wrong. I'm like, basically, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Said because it was one really smart guy. And, you know, when I do seminars, I always tell people the key to cheating is to know who to cheat off. You know, if you're going to go to school and you're going to cheat, sit next to the smart people. If you sit next to a dumb kid and copy all his answers, you fail the test. But if you find the smart people, and that's why, you know, people, like I'm lucky in the sense that from my experiences in speaking and in going and just being different places that I've been able to be around these guys, I've been able to be around McGill and I've been able to be around Greg Cook and I've been able to be around Mark and I've been able to to be around, you know, Greg Rose and so many smart guys and so many, you know, some would be like, Greg Rose, he's a chiropractor who deals with golfers. I'm like, yeah, and he's really friggin' smart. And it doesn't matter that he's a chiropractor who deals with golfers because he's really friggin' smart. You know, and it's being able to find those people, but instead what we see are these packs of people and hey, it's still strength coaches, you know, it's still like the, you know, the big, like I always said, the big muscle head, shaved head, I went to the CSCCA thing and I thought I was in Jurassic Park. I saw people doing exercises that I had not seen in 20 years. I mean, I saw behind the neck lat pull downs. I saw, and these were the coaches training in the morning. I literally was walking around going, I should just film this. This is hysterical. I mean, it was literally hilarious to watch the training of the strength and conditioning coaches themselves and be like, oh my God, this is a time warp. You know, literally dinosaurs walking the earth. It's crazy. To me. And so I guess I just look at it and think, like, I mean, I don't know. People are nuts. Yeah. Well, yeah, so uh, I have, I kind of want to, before our time's up, I want to uh, finish. I actually want to finish with some devil's advocate stuff uh, just because I think it'd be really, uh, I think it'd be really cool. Uh, but before I get to that, you just mentioned I had this question for you. Uh, how do you work out right now? Like you personally work. What do you? How do I work out? Yeah. Um, what do you do right I now? I do probably three to four hit sessions on the Airdyne bike um, once a week. Uh, you know, I mean, well, like once one a day. They tend to be any generally in the five to ten minute range. I get my heart rate up to. I've had my the other day. I was up to 180 beats a minute. I have a resting heart rate of 50 beats a minute. And I've had my heart rate at 180 beats a minute the other day in one of my hit workouts. And I do a very minimal amount of joint-friendly strength training stuff twice a week. I just enough so I don't look horrible and die. <laughs> I know. I like when I couldn't lift heavy weights anymore. I really lost interest in lifting weights. I, I'm not all that. Like I've never been like a physique person and really worried about. It. I was a I was a powerlifter. I loved the. I loved lifting heavy weights. That's the beauty of this. Is that that was the reason I got drawn into this. But then I realized that it was that wasn't my job and that you know you don't get awards for the number of surgeries you've survived. You know, you get awards for being at your kids' games and, and not, you know, not being a guy, you know, who 
got you know two knee replacements and two hip replacements and can't pick his arms up. Yeah. But you know, still benches. You know, like some of these guys are like, yeah, I'm still squatting with two knee replacements. I'm like, that's fucking brilliant. Excuse me, language. <laughs> you could probably beat me, but you know what I mean. You're like, really? <laughs> like, why would you do that? Yeah. Do you do you think that if you, I mean, I guess how many people who powerlift? I don't know injury rates in powerlifting at all. But you think that if you wouldn't have had those injuries and maybe would have or had less injuries to a lesser extent, and you were still like doing that stuff, do you think that would? Play, I mean, I guess it's hard to, to, to say, but do you think that would have an impact on? Uh... I think it meant I would have evolved later. I think everybody has the injuries. I, I wrote an article called the Evolution of a Strength Coach. And in Evolution of a Strength Coach, I said, we all start out with a physique goal. We all want to meet girls. You know, we all want to go to a bar and hang around and, and meet pretty girls. Like, that's why you lift weights in the beginning. I don't care what anybody says. Then you realize that, you know, the guy with no legs in the tight shirt is getting giggled at by the guys who really can lift weights. So you be, want to be one of the guys who lifts weights. So you become like the powerlifting guy. And all of a sudden, how much weight you lift becomes really important to you. And these are all usually like teenage, early 20s kind of years. My problem is then you become the injured powerlifter. I would say that's stage three. You start getting hurt and you start all of a sudden ice and Advil. And, you know, I always said you meet all these guys with uh, three-letter names like Art and Matt and names like that. And, uh, you know, you're, every time you're going, oh, I'm getting this worked on, I'm getting that worked on. And then you either stay in that injured powerlifter stage or you evolve into the functional training guy stage. And again, I talk about these articles. I'm writing – I have another article that I should finish called Training an Athlete for 17 Years. I have one of my professional athletes that I've literally trained since he was – uh, he went from being a college freshman to retiring from the NHL at 37. And during that time, it actually was – it ended up being 19 years that I actually trained him for. And at 18 – you know, he big three guy, you know, he's the greatest 300 pound bench presser. We had to get him good at the clean and good at the squat and get him strong. By 37, he was not doing any of those lifts. It was dumbbell bench, one leg squat. Uh, you know, our power stuff was all like sort of body weight, you know, jumping type stuff. And, and when you see the evolution of this guy trying to maintain his career, it starts to make you think because we still like, like our kids, my kids, my own kids, trap bar deadlift my own kids clean my own kids bench press we're doing this with i'm doing this with my own children the difference is i also know that we're going to hit a certain point in time when this is not going to be the right prescription for them anymore and then we've got to move towards a more intelligent prescription i'm a big believer like you know learn the basics it's like reading writing and arithmetic i want my you know my my daughter is you know got a full scholarship to college to play ice hockey she can hang clean 135 for five she can bench press 135 for five I mean, she's a pretty good lifter she can deadlift probably you know whatever 280 300 pounds something like that you know somewhere in the double body weight range but i know that over time those things will change and orthopedically things will pop up and that they have to be intelligent enough to respond to them and i think that's the part that we miss out on is that we don't respond yeah that's it I think that says it all almost. I, I it was uh, Cameron Joss uh, two two podcasts ago works uh, for DeFranco's. He was saying they the kids they get it's almost like they go from a, a unilateral uh, when they first get them to they move to bilateral stuff uh, as high school or collegiate. But then they when they get beyond that, then they go back to single leg like to keep them healthy or something. Yeah, you know, something uh, along those lines. The thing difference for us is just you know we kind of start bilateral with gobbled squats and kettlebell deadlifts and trap bar deadlifts and stuff like that. And then 
we just never go through that middle stage of bilateral. And Joe's a perfect example in the sense that Joe used to be a go heavy or go home guy who laughed at people like me. And now he's a banged up mess. You know, he's got to be, you listen to all his podcasts and he's talking about all his injuries and all the things he can't do. And you look at it and think, you know, sometimes people stay in that injured powerlifter stage too long. They, they stay with, you know, the beer and ice cream diet too long. They stay with what they like too long. And then they pay the, the price. I'm lucky in the sense that I've paid at what I would consider a modest orthopedic price in the sense that my back has always bothered me. My back's bothered me since the early 80s. And I attribute it to all those moronic workouts that I did where I just thought my back was going to hurt never realizing that I was doing structural damage. My shoulders have never been the same since the same time period, but I'm perfectly functional. I can do everything in life. I can run, jump, throw. I just can't do a lot of any of that on any particular day. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is it's so interesting how our, our own experience as an athlete does shape shape things. I mean, I've... I'm, I'm interested. I've never been like a huge powerlifter type, uh, so I haven't done enough of it to get to get banged up. <laughs> I've just like I've had I've had really good athletes uh, tweak themselves out on back squats, which uh, you know not often, but it does happen. And, and then you think to yourself, okay, uh, what am I? You know how how am I going to proceed from this, and how am I going to move forward with this athlete? I uh, I do, oh, am I going to do it again with the next one? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's my, that was my issue. Do you know what I mean? It's like, okay, I, we, I had the same thing in the 90s when I was a football strength coach. But after a while, I started thinking, am I just going to keep going back to the well with this guy with the same prescription because it's what I believe in? I think that's what the fundamental question that we have to look at. And that should, over time, start to shape your philosophy. Because, again, I heard a lot of people. I mean, that's what, and this is why I always say that people don't, the people who don't understand where I'm coming from literally don't understand where I came from. Do you know what I mean? They don't look and think, well, gee, you know, I, I maybe I should listen to this guy. He's actually been doing it for 30 plus years. And he started out where I was, but he's not there anymore. You know, and you should look at that and think, why isn't this guy where I was anymore? And, and in one way you could say it was because I was injured, but some, two of the best strength coaches that I know got injured and didn't finish their college career. Chris Doyle at Iowa, who is the highest paid guy in college football, hurt his neck, I think, his junior year and, and couldn't play the rest of his junior year and his senior year and decided to become a, a football coach first and then a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, Mark Verstegen, same thing, got hurt playing, I, I think, at Washington State. So I think a lot of people, a lot of the more intelligent people I know were probably colored very early on by their injury experiences and thought, hmm, I'd love to figure out a way for people not to to have the experiences that I had or conversely I'd love to be able to figure out a way for people to have a better experience than I had. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I think that is what it's all about. I just creating that those better experiences and yeah based on uh what you've gone through or what you've seen your happen to these athletes throughout the years. Uh, even if not often, just finding a better way to make sure it doesn't happen again. I uh, yeah, the question I really want to ask you because I think a lot of people, a lot of people that listen to the the either listen to my podcast or are familiar with my stuff, it's like uh, track and field or or vertical jump or these these outcome measure goals. Uh, and so, a lot of times, if if you're not even you know sports like track or where maybe uh, pro, uh, 
I would say injuries is, is you want to reduce injuries no matter what. But if it's like I want to do every, everything I can, if there's an exercise that's going to get me this last, you know, whatever, I'm going to do it. Uh, so first off, uh, and maybe this, I hope I just want to make sure I'm informed. But how is your so no back squat? What's your how do you guys utilize front squats and weight wise or anything like that? No I, front I, squats. No, no front back. squats either. No front squats. No we back. Goblet squats. squat, basically. I would say if I was just kind of. Uh, being generic about it, we probably goblet squat up to the point where we don't have a heavy enough dumbbell anymore or the person is not capable of getting the dumbbell in position. And then that sort of becomes the uh, the break point. All right. I'm not going to switch over to a back squat or a front squat. And again, it's and sometimes for me, it's more the philosophical slippery slope thing. You can't have one person doing something. And this is one of the things that I tell our staff all the time. Is as soon as somebody sees it, even as a college strength coach, like we never did quarter squats, we never did half squats. We did full squats. Everybody did full squats, and I bitched about full squats every single day. Because what I knew is I always say this as strength and conditioning coaches, our job is to fight human nature. And human nature is to cheat and compete. And so as soon as one person cheats and gets to do something or gets more recognition than somebody else, Everybody else will cheat. And it's one of the reasons you have to have such great culture in your weight room and such great standards, particularly when you're in group settings where it's like, no, this is the way we're going to do it and this is the way everybody's going to do it and I'm not making an exception for you because you think you're different. We're all going to do the same thing the same way because I need to create a culture where everybody understands what the expectation is. So I think that's uh, – you know, I, I think those things kind of cross over. So as a result, like I said, I don't want anybody back squatting in my gym, period. And I still, I give, I have a couple coaches who like to front squat. I still give them shit. I'm like, I don't want you to front squat during the day when there's people here. Do not do it. Hmm. Because somebody's going to see it and say, why can't I do that? And then I have to give them this really long explanation of why they can't do something that they saw one of my coaches doing. So that makes it difficult. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's, it's, it is definitely like, and I do see that a lot in my own weight room as you have. A handful of kids who, if the team's doing back squats, you have a handful of kids that that need to be regressed. But it's hard to regress that group necessarily when they see everyone else doing. It's like they want to do that too. I mean, it's just it is an interesting uh, cultural instance in that case. Uh, and I was, it's it's very much monkey see, monkey do in terms of. So you've got to figure out what do I want the monkeys to see. And one of the things I, I want to make sure is that the monkeys need to see what I want the monkeys to do. And if they see things that I don't want them to do, then I'm going to have a problem. Yeah. Not to say, not to, not to equate any of my wonderful athletes to monkeys, but it's a pretty good analogy. Yeah. That, that is really interesting actually, because it also creates the perception of what is, I mean, mental buy-in with what you're doing is so huge. If you believe in it and, and you know, if you see, if you're in a room and you see some really good athletes in the room and they're doing uh, heavy back squats, you're going to put a higher mental order on, whatever they're doing, be it, or if they're, I don't know if they're on the BOSU ball and they're the best athlete in the room, you're probably going to think that that's going to, uh, which I did hear an interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting podcast with David Weck. That's neither here nor there. Um, anyways. Uh, okay. So no front squatting, no back squatting. This is my, maybe my question too. And I, and I love like pistols and single leg stuff, but, uh, in terms of either like anecdotes or, or like stand, like, let's say combine guy, standing vertical jump. Uh, I mean, standing vertical jump without front or back squatting. How do you, uh, is there uh-huh. a, Bobby Sewell, white wide receiver from Brown. So, again, not probably who's going to be your typically most explosive guy, 39.5. Um, 
you know, training with us for the combine. I've got one of our girls on our U.S. Olympic team who's gone from now. This is from 19 inches to 30. Wow. Who's without ever doing our we we show huge bilateral deficit in our verticals too. We test single leg yeah. and double leg sometimes, and our bilateral deficit tends to run 20 to 30 percent there. And our girls, I have um, I've trained our women's Olympic team since 2000. Yeah, I'm trying to think what year is it? 17, 2010. A women's Olympic ice hockey team. I'm no longer doing it, but I was up until a year ago. I had a half a dozen girls who had gone from sub 20 to over 25 with basically the only bilateral. We, we Olympic lift, so I would consider that bilateral exercise. And I think that's when you're thinking about power. I think there's a big difference between power and strength. And there's a big, you know what I mean? Not that I'm telling you something. Not, I think there there <laughs> is a big difference between power and strength. Sorry, that, that was a moronic sort of segue. But we're really our athletes are very good Olympic lifters. Most of our females can, you know, hang clean pretty easily. One thirty-five for five. I mean, that's kind of our standard. If you're strong, you can do it. Most of our females can dumbbell snatch fifty-five to sixty pounds for five. Most of them can snatch, you know, over a hundred pounds for five reps. So we're still doing, and you know, we're doing bilateral plyos. We're doing bilateral power work, and in some cases, we do. If people are healthy, we do trap bar deadlift. And this gets into trap bar deadlift is our only bilateral lift. And um, so uh, uh, what's uh, Barry Ross, Allison Felix's coach. Mm-hmm. I remember reading, I read Bear Powered years ago. And it was another one of those moments. Now, I was totally anti-deadlift based on my bad powerlifting experiences. I read Barry Ross's book about, and he basically said something to the effect of, it's a way better total body lift because it incorporates grip strength and upper body, upper back strength that squatting doesn't. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And what we realized as we started to play with it, it also involves flexion moments versus extension and compressive forces. So when you think about squatting, in squatting, you're trying to produce extension and you're involved with a compressive load coming down your spine deliberately. In deadlifting, neither of those things those things are present. You've got a flexion moment and an extension force. So I think you can deadlift much more safely than you can squat. And we've even moved into more like high handle trap bar deadlift, you know, more kind of partial range stuff. So some people might say, oh, you're getting your high neural load from that. I'd say I'd agree to disagree because, you know, it's not 100% of our athletes that are doing it. And most of our, most of my hockey girls, we haven't, we've, we've been, Almost exclusively unilateral, but we saw a ridiculous improvement in speed, a ridiculous improvement in power, ridiculous improvement in vertical jump. And the most interesting thing with females, no weight gain. Interesting. The girl who went from 19 to 30 gained a total of two pounds in seven years. Yeah, that's that's awesome stuff. Uh, I like what you said about deadlift. It makes me think because I've had in my own experience, this is just me drawing from my intuition and I, I haven't, you know, this is something I didn't end up training in athletes, but back when I was in high school, I put five, six inches on my one and two leg jumps with just like a plyo program and sumo deadlift was my big lift because I, I, and I didn't have a coach and because I tried regular deadlifting, I'm like, I think I'm bending my back too much. I'm just going to do sumo. That feels good. <laughs> and and it worked out really well. I was like, that was my one compliment. I I really liked it. And, and yeah, I, I was a sumo deadlifter too as a powerlifter because I was a better squatter. I mean, I always think that generally speaking, people that are better squatters will be sumo deadlifts. 
And we went to Trap Bar because the thing about Trap Bar is really you could make the argument that most people with the Trap Bar are Trap Bar squat patterning. And I love that. I love the fact that, okay, I can get a squat pattern with the Barry Ross deadlift benefits in terms of I'm getting grip strength, I'm getting upper back strength, I'm getting, when I'm thinking about doing one lift where I'm getting a lot of muscle mass involved, deadlift beats squat. Just does. I mean, you, you can't, again, you can argue your preferences, you can argue your experiences, but you can't argue the anatomical stresses of the lift. And if you look and think, okay, everything is the same in terms of I'm going down and up like this, except in one, I'm balancing the bar on my shoulders. In the other, I have to hold it in my hands and use my back musculature. It's like, okay, well, then that one wins. And those aren't the, – again, the thing for me is these aren't places that I wanted to be. They're places that I felt compelled to go to based on what I was learning. And I think that's the biggest difference is, is – and I think it, and there's probably nothing that's more important in our field than the ability. I was just reading um, Think Like a Freak. I don't know if you've read any of the Freakonomics books, but Think Like a Freak. They talk the three most difficult words in the English language. I was wrong. And that's so hard for people to do. It is so difficult for people to look and think. I can't, you know, I can't do it. It's the back to the Fonz idea. And the old people that listen to this podcast will get the Fonz reference. But you've got to be able to look at it and think, okay, I was wrong about that. Now what do we do? I look at everybody, okay, we were wrong. Now what do we do? How do we adapt? As opposed to, uh, you know, ostrich mode, turtle mode. You know, we're either going to stick our head in the sand or pull it back in the shell. Which one are we going to do? Well, neither one of those is, is where we want to be if we're going to be consistently getting better. We've got to be able to look at it and think, nope, here's what I need to do. I need to adapt. I need to change. I need to look at my programming. And I can remember now this. I'll tell you one last story before I go. But I went to a Charles Poliquin seminar years ago. And I'm not a huge Charles fan. Uh, there's some things about Charles I really like. There's some things about Charles that I don't like as much. You know, he hasn't always, I don't think, you know, been the nicest, kindest guy in the field. But he's one of the smartest. And we went, he was talking about the idea of pairing exercise, the whole A1, A2 kind of thing. And I sat there and he gave kind of the mathematical explanation for rest between sets. And he was saying basically, hey, if you do a set of squats and then you rest for a minute, then you do a set of chins, then you rest for a minute, you've got three minutes rest between sets of squats, which is going to help your squatting workout be better. But your density is increasing. You're getting more work done per hour. I was like, he's right. And I remember I was with Jeff Oliver then, who was at Holy Cross, and another one of my assistants, you know, he was then with me. And I said, we got to go back and rewrite all the workouts. And they were like, we're going to change every workout? I'm like, yep, every single one. Because he's right. That makes more sense than what we do. Our system right now of do a set, wait three minutes, do another set, everybody hangs around and chats. That's not efficient. We need to be more efficient. This is going to make us more efficient. And we just went back and we rewrote every workout. Our workouts have been that way now for 20 years in terms of we pair. Now we're, you know, we're into tri-sets and quad sets and you know, always trying to figure out what are we going to do? What can we do in our rest time that's going to be more productive than sitting on our ass on the bench talking to one of our teammates? But these were all the adaptations that came about over time from learning, from being able to go out and say, hey, I think this guy might know something I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's great stuff, Mike. I uh a real quick to uh this is like a thirty second question before I before I, um 
we finish up but those those in those athletes you you're getting these vertical jump gains too i'm assuming the pistol squat plays a like the one leg kind of pistol style squat is that playing oh, a role? Read my, i just posted my article a, a, a one leg squat is not a pistol but a pistol is a one leg squat we never pistol squat we do tons of one leg squats to me a pistol squat is done standing on you know it's a stupid party trick that kettlebell people do where you stand on the floor and you hold your other leg parallel to the floor a one leg squat is any version where you allow that person to choose the free leg angle. Ah, I see. So we do lots of one leg squats and no pistols. And we hammer, but but I really think, but we really, really have invested in that rear foot elevated split squat, what some people would call, you know, again, Bulgarian split squat. I'm like, it's not Bulgarian and it's not a split, you know, or Bulgarian lunge. I'm like, it's not Bulgarian and it's not a lunge. Okay. It's a rear foot elevated split squat. And we really push the envelope there with our athletes in terms of really pushing them to be strong. And, you know, is that the holy grail? No, I think the holy grail is a combination of all of the above. I think if you're not Olympic lifting and you don't have a good plyo program and you're not doing unilateral strength and you're not doing unilateral hip dominant stuff, like, again, our girls will do, you know, what people are getting against single leg RDL, what we would call a one leg straight leg deadlift. Our girls are using 60 pound dumbbells. You know what I mean? I have girls that are using 50% of their body weight in that lift. And, our, you know, our males will be, you know, we'll get to the point where they're maxing out our dumbbell rack in a single dumbbell version of those exercises. When we, when I was with the Red Sox, we had pitchers that would do in they'd be single leg versions with 225 for reps routinely. So, you know, I don't think there, there is not one answer. The answer is a, a good program, but the, the problem is like with our programming, there are people who just get stuck and it's like this, you know, La la la, I can't hear you. I got my fingers in your ears. You don't like squatting. You know, it's like, okay, you know, you need to get past that. You need to think, you need to go to this, this Lee Cockrell point of what if the way I've always done it was wrong? What if I'm not right? What if my program isn't the best? Because people always say to me, and I, I have to close with this because I do have to get out of here, but um, people always say, do you know the best way to do blank? Whatever it is. And I say, yeah, the way we're doing it right now. And they always kind of look at me like, what do you mean? I'm like, whatever we're doing right now is the best thing that we know how to do. Because if I had an inkling that something would be better than what we were doing, that is what we would be doing. I don't not do stuff that I think is going to be good. And so I think that's the stuff that, that people have to look at and think, you know, are you in fact doing the best thing that you could do for your athletes? And I mean, you know, examine, ask yourself some questions. Look at the whys, you know, why do I do this? And if the why, I, I did a presentation a couple of years ago on Start With Why, Simon Sinek's book, and one of the things I said is that if your why is because that's the way we've always done it, or if your why is that's the way my, you know, college strength coach did it, then that's the wrong why. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you and, and just how to move forward in that manner. Uh, it, it's it's great stuff, asking why uh, we do what we do. And then seeing the results you've gotten, even in spite, you know, in spite of what I shouldn't say in spite of, but through uh, the removal of some of these uh, quote-unquote holy grails in the field. So, uh, yeah, it's great stuff. And, and thanks for sharing all that with us on the show. I just hearing that uh, presented in that is, is um I think it's helpful. It's it's helpful because yeah, people will just disarm themselves right away, or or not disarm, but they'll arm themselves when they hear that functional training no squat. So it's good to go back and go into it, and and hear the why of it all. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a 
a really quick uh, 60, 72 minutes here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, time flies when you're speaking about stuff you're passionate about. So it was really great having you talk about that. That is absolutely true. All right. Well, hey, I got to get going. I got to get to the gym. I got work to do. And yeah. I know you have the same. All Thank right. you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in with us today. We're happy to have you as listeners of this show. And uh, man, I really enjoyed it again, listening to Mike share his mind and unplug about some of these topics with squatting, single leg training, deadlifting, and more. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, please don't hesitate to hit that subscribe button on your iTunes. I think I was reading, I was just listening to a TED Talk that if you want to do something, you have five seconds to do it. And if you don't, then you can forget about it. So quick, stop what you're doing right now, five seconds. Hit subscribe on iTunes, <laughs> and uh, we'd love to always uh, just be updating you with what we're doing, um, just fly sports and the, the podcast here. Uh, also, just check out our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. They are the premier supplier of high-tech training tools for the modern coach and athlete. They are not the, uh, what do you call it, American shopping market where there's like eight, nine types of each tool. <laughs> they have selected the best in each category. They are going to do an amazing job with customer support, and you are going to get a lot of these products if you're in the USA for less because less shipping. Christopher's the man. Check out simplyfaster.com. Check out their blog. We'll see you guys again next week. Have a great one until then.